0: Lord, you've had no beginning, you will have no end. And we praise you as the ancient of days that you are our God in this time. And as we come before your word, we plead for the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God. We pray for instruction in this word that is our life, that is our spiritual food. We thank you for the truths that we have sung. And we praise you, Father, for the new life that we have in Christ and through your spirit to understand the wisdom and the power of your word. Guide us and teach us further today and confirm in our minds your desires for this assembly. For those who know not Christ, we pray in their behalf and ask that you would open their eyes to the truth they cannot see in their own strength, to the wisdom that comes not from below, but from above. And I pray that you will do a work In our midst here today, through Jesus we pray, amen. Please be seated. Does it seem to you like our nation recently tripped into a dark hole of unusual ignorance and ineptitude? I'm not sure that we were doing all that well before 2020, but racial, political, and health crises seem to have eroded our collective capacity to think and to act with anything that might confuse one with wisdom. And yet, politicians, cultural elitists, social activists, the media, proclaim all the louder how self-sufficiently and self-evidently wise they are. And this chest-thumping arrogance seems to go hand in hand with increasingly shrill attacks against the purported idiocy of Christ-centered belief and practice. This past week, in North America, Christians suffered imprisonment, censorship, and public ridicule for upholding biblical truth. President, God bless our president, that he articulated a biblical position, then classified anyone who defends that truth as the dregs of society, his words. But we get it, we get it. Genuinely born-again believers have come to terms with the reality that God's wisdom is foolishness in the eyes of our world as are those who would obey that wisdom. Yet we've not assembled here today to complain. We've not assembled here to vent our anger against the world's resistance to God's Word. We've assembled here today to sing for joy. And we sing because we also know that God's Word is His power unto salvation. His Word is wisdom to our lives So we find peace in the reality that the very power of God, the very wisdom of his life-transforming word has always been despised. It has always been dismissed as weak-minded folly in the estimation of those who are perishing, of those who have not been transformed by that word and are headed then to a Christless eternity in hell. Now let me be clear, this is not a Democrat versus Republican thing, a right versus left thing. We speak here of a cosmic battle with eternal implications. And I exhort us today as Christ's followers that the only faithful response is for us to endure the world's ridicule, to boast in the power and the wisdom of God's revealed word. It is this stance that we must take and must not relinquish. And this is Paul's burden as he labors for the soul of the Corinthian church. The believers in Corinth, it's a little difficult for us to put ourselves in their spot, but if we can strive to do that for a moment, they were deeply influenced by the spirit of the age with its emphasis upon Greek philosophy, vigorous debate, and fine speeches. It was very much a matter of rhetoric, of how you speak, how you marshal an argument. And though that may not impress us particularly, it certainly did them. And so they, they wanted their speakers to conform to this sort of way that took pride in man's wisdom, in man's approach, but more in a more sinister way of man's ideas. And Paul recognizes, he's convinced that the gospel itself is at stake. Indeed, there was a division within the church that was rising up that sort of mirrored the way that the world considered its different camps, its different debates, its way of approach. A church striving to mold its life to the wisdom of man was a church in danger of relinquishing the very power and wisdom of God's Word. A conformity to the spirit of the age compromised this church's dependence upon that power, upon that word from God. And so Paul labors to pull the church to a right relationship with the world, to see this properly. And a right relationship to the word of God and then to one another. Without taking time here to set the context of verses 1-16 through any more than just verse 17, Paul rebukes their divisions, and he pushes against them by saying they were identifying with who it was that baptized them, as if they were falling into camps. And he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Baptism is not our particular focus here today, and we won't consider it for long, but this certainly is a statement that forms a definitive argument against baptismal regeneration. That is, one is saved by the act of baptism. If baptism was an essential part of salvation, God would have sent Paul to baptize. Now, Paul's not minimizing the importance of baptism. Jesus commands his followers to be baptized To demonstrate that they have trusted in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. So he's not minimizing that at all. We can point to other places in Paul's writings where that's very clear. But Paul's focus here is on his mission to preach the gospel. To rely on God's word as the power of God for salvation. The good news of Jesus' death in the place of the sinner and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Now notice how Paul delivered that message in verse 17. God did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That is frightening. That's frightening words. Pastors evangelists, missionaries, Christians, we can speak the truth of God in such a way that it empties the gospel of its power. Preachers in our day, for instance, I think by way of application we could say preachers in our day who are obsessed with what they wear, with how they look, are in danger of emptying the gospel message of its power. And there are accounts. Heard of one this week. The man's wearing a $50,000 jacket. I'm 59 years of age. I never knew there was a jacket that you could pay that much for. $50,000 jacket. There's something that's happening there. There's, There's a presentation of the body that can empty the gospel of its power. Preachers in our day who labor to get laughs, to craft their sermons to gain approval, or choose sermons for their popular appeal, judging the culture around, can empty the gospel message of its power. It's a danger. We must watch for it. It'd be something like what takes place in some churches. It'd be something like a wedding is happening up here on the platform, and the couple has come to the place where they're now going to speak their vows of fidelity to one another. And as they begin to speak those vows, and the congregation is attending those vows, witnessing them, somebody comes up out of the congregation and stands on the platform and begins it's a comedian and he begins his routine and people are shocked and annoyed and but this guy's really funny and they start laughing and the congregation everybody at this wedding is all laughing some of them are crying with tears of laughter and they just leave they just have the time of their life and while that's going on the couple's up here speaking their vows of commitment to one another and nobody really paid any attention but they had a really good time. That's what preachers can do with the Word of God. To turn it into something about themselves. Something about the people that misses God and leaves His Word aside. So Paul says, I did not come to you with words of eloquent wisdom. Again, remembering the context here. I didn't come as an entertainer. I didn't come to present myself to you as somebody that's really cool. I didn't come to tap into the arguments that turn on Corinthians. I came to proclaim the word of Christ. I spoke this way lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It becomes about us and not about God's saving grace. I didn't come that way. Four. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, for, he says, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is saying here, I refuse to tap the popular reliance on fancy speeches that appeal to Corinthians. Rather, I will preach God's word. Now make no mistake, that word of the cross, that word declaring God's saving power in Jesus' incarnation, I think this is the meaning of the word of the cross, it includes all of Christ's saving work, His incarnation, it includes His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His reign, that is folly to those who are perishing. That God took on flesh, died to pay the cost of sin, rose from the dead, and this dead man is living today and reigning from heaven's throne. Utter folly. That's just ridiculous mythology. Paul identifies actually two people here, two different kinds of people with two distinct responses. Those who are perishing, notice the present tense there, and that's accurate. They are ones who are perishing. It depicts them in a living death. They who are perishing, their response is that the gospel is foolishness. Maybe they're not so harsh about it and they just say it's unnecessary or it's useless. Or they may get a little more difficult and say it's just fantasy land, it's myth, it's ridiculous. Or they may say it's culturally destructive. This is nothing new. This isn't something that's just happened in our day, that our world has lost its way, and this is unusual. This is usual. This is how the gospel is received by those who are perishing, naturally, in their own strength and their own wisdom, which is why Paul's saying, I don't want to tap into that. Because it will gut the gospel of its power if we appeal to people simply what, with what they understand naturally or what they want to hear. It's nothing new. There's a graffito. I just learned that word. Graffiti is plural, but the singular is graffito. Second century Rome. On the left, upper left, you see there kind of what it looks like. On the lower right, it's sort of cleaned up so that we can see it better. But it said, just somebody just writing on a wall somewhere that's been uncovered. It said, Alexamenos worships his God. And you notice the picture of the God. Backwards, showing his hind parts on a cross with a donkey head, the head of an ass. That's this Christian's God. How stupid, how foolish to think a man died and it means anything. This is the normal way Now, there is a second response here that we find in verse 18, and that is those who are being saved. Again, notice the present tense. They are being saved. We remember this truth, but there is definitive sanctification. There is a place in time where we pass from life, from death to life, where we are declared righteous by God, and from that point forward to eternity, we are God's child We have been sanctified. We've been justified forever. But there's also an aspect of our sanctification, our salvation, that is ongoing. We are being saved. For those who have come to trust Christ as Savior, we are progressively becoming who God wants us to be. And ultimately, there's the future aspect when we will enter into glory and the project will be complete. I think we'll ever be learning... And ever in one way then improving throughout eternity. But there is that past definitive point, the present ongoing reality and the future completion of our salvation. He speaks then properly of us as those who are being saved. Not because we're adding to our works in order to achieve salvation, but just from the standpoint that we're a work in progress. We're not there yet. God continues His saving work in our lives. That's the other response. And to those who are being saved, God's Word is the power of God. This message of the cross, this message of salvation, it is the power of God. That is, it doesn't tell us about God's power, though it certainly does that. The revealed Word of God is itself God's supernatural power to rescue us from sin and to transform our lives. It is a message that comes from above to which we respond a truth, a report of good news of what God has done. That is the power of God that transforms the soul. And it must be protected. Responding in humble faith to the truth God reveals liberates us well, Somehow, then, this all needs to find resolution. Which of these radically different responses is right? Is God's word utter folly? No, Paul exhorts us to understand that it is the power of God, verse 18. So, verse 19, for it is written, he continues, and supports that point, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart... Quoting here the Old Testament, God does not stand by passively and say, well, you you don't like what I've said? So be it, uh, to each his own, but I'm just offering this because I'm a kind God. Not at all. The world's rejection of God's word is outrageous rebellion. It is the creature telling the Creator what he must say and what he must not say, what he must do and what he must not do. And so the unbeliever's rejection of God's Word is itself judgment. It is the process by which God will bring to ruin their arrogant self-sufficiency. It's not just the unbeliever standing in front of the truth of God's Word and saying, "I I just don't accept it, but it is rather God Himself destroying their wisdom. Taking the discernment of the discerning and thwarting it. Now Paul now glories in God by asking a series of questions to highlight the world's incapacity to overcome God's wisdom. Verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? How has God done that? Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The kind of complicated statement there, but it's really at the heart of this idea, this passage, and it's important that we understand it. So let's take it just a bit by bit through verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God. Here is the ordained purpose, the decree of God. This is how God orders the world. What is it? Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now that doesn't mean we turn our brain off and God zaps us. What it means is it's not through human reasoning, human logic, what human beings find acceptable, that's not the way that we come to know God. The world does not know God through its own human reason. Rather, it pleased God, there's his sovereignty again, his divine election of the way that salvation should work, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's not saying we preach folly. But it's saying that the message that is proclaimed of salvation, the message from above, is viewed by the world as foolishness. It's through that means that God has designed to save people, to save all who have come to true faith. The folly of what we preach is not preaching an unreasonable or foolish manner or message, but the folly of the message as far as man is concerned. And what is man's wisdom? Man's wisdom, when it comes to dealing with sin and guilt and God, if there's even a recognition that he is, is works. I'll be better. I will show myself to be a religious good person. I'll work my way there. God has designed it that it's not that way. It's not my reason. It's not my works. But it is a salvation from above, a message that is revealed by God himself in the gospel, including again the incarnation. And what does the world say? God takes on human flesh? Really? His death. God creates man and then man kills him? The resurrection from the dead. What a ridiculous myth. Nobody rises from the dead. Have you ever seen it? The world mocks. It laughs. It dismisses. And God says that message, church, is the power of God. It is the way of salvation, and God has designed it so. Gordon Fee says so well, who in the name of wisdom would have dreamed that up? Only God is so wise as to be so foolish. Only God is so wise. As to be so foolish. So, this salvation plan that comes only through faith in a report of good news concerning what Jesus achieved violates man's way of reasoning. Verse 22 The Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. That is, in their self reliant schemes, Jews demand miraculous signs prove that you are from God. And Greeks demand a demonstration of what they find intellectually reasonable. In stark contrast, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul is saying, you're worried about synchronizing your ideas to the world outside. It's going to offend them. The gospel will offend them. It breaks everything, every rule that they want to establish. So the preaching of Christ crucified, the message of the gospel, causes Jews to stumble and it's folly to Gentiles. To the Jews, a suffering Savior is a contradiction in terms. A redemption won on a Roman cross by a God-man is pure nonsense. To the Greeks, the notion of God dying and a dead man rising from the dead was moronic. It's actually the Greek word of foolishness that we find here. Moron is how you say it in Greek. It's just moronic. And this same gospel message is met with equal resistance in our day. But thank God there is another response. Verse 24. So that's the rejection, 22 and 23. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The very message of God's revealed Word, the very Christ the world rejects, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ's resurrection is miraculous. It is the ultimate sign. Christ's death in the place of sinners to pay the cost of their eternal damnation, to purchase for them eternal life by rising from the dead, is the most rational message in human history. It is logical to its very core. But notice who it is that responds to God's Word. Who is it that responds to this miraculous, rational means of salvation? It's not the world. It's not those who are perishing and reject that message. But it's verse 24, to those who are called some among the Jews, some among the Gentiles, who come to recognize that Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The respondents are those who are called. Now that's not a reference to the, what we call the external call of God, the hearing of the gospel, or even just seeing Natural creation and seeing there a witness to God. That's not the reference here. The calling of God here, I think, is to the effectual call of God, whereby God calls our dead spirit to life in a faith response to the gospel. So think in terms of Jesus calling Lazarus to life in the physical realm. That's what happens in the effectual call in the spiritual realm. God speaks his truth, and the person says, That is wisdom from above. That is light for my dark soul. That is a message that genuinely describes how I can be forgiven of my sin before a holy and eternal God and stand in his presence. Does that call come to you? Have you sensed that call? Have you seen that word? Call upon the Lord, seek him. Verse 25, as he summarizes this main point, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Leon Morris says, The sign-seeking Jews were blind to the significance of the greatest sign of all when it was before them, the resurrection. The wisdom-loving Greeks could not discern the most profound wisdom of all when they were confronted with it. God taking on flesh, dying in our place, rising from the dead. They couldn't see it. It's foolishness. The world scoffs at God's word, at the power of this word. It rejects His salvation plan. and they're like something like a foolish dad whose daughter falls very desperately ill and rushes her to the emergency room and the doctors confer and they're standing right there in the room talking with one another debating back and forth how do we deal with this thing's a very rare condition extremely dangerous she's about to die and they're going back and forth and the dad says he doesn't get any of it he doesn't understand the terminology he doesn't understand what they're talking about he doesn't see how this will work and he just announces in the room you people are all idiots You're fools. I don't get any of this. It makes no sense at all. Just go out of here. That's in a sense how the world responds to the gospel. It's beauty. It is logical. It's the only way salvation could be won. It's miraculous. And yet, there's not an understanding. And so, it's just dismiss it. To paraphrase fee again, he says, "Who in the name of wisdom would choose a plan of rescue from sin, in which the Messiah dies and a dead man defeats death." But Paul now continues in verses 26 through 31, and says, "Who in the name of wisdom would choose you? There's the plan that's seen as foolishness, then there's the people that God chooses. The saving power of God in His Word targets very unspectacular people. And praise God for this truth. Verse 26 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak, that is, weak people in the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly people and despised in the world, even things that are not, that is, those who are nobodies, to bring to nothing the things that are. Notice the emphasis on God's sovereign choice yet again. He chose three times there in verses 27 and 28. The initiative comes from God. The sovereign choice comes from God. He chooses some wise, some strong, some exalted in the eyes of the world. He can choose anyone that He wants to, but God rejoices. You thank Him for this? He rejoices to choose the downtrodden, the weak, the forgotten, the insignificant, the homely. He loves to save average people. Thank Him. He chooses to save unspectacular people. And look at us. No one I know in this church with earthly fame No one's going to change the history books. There's nobody here of royal blood. No one here of unlimited wealth or influence. Every once in a while we've talked about that in the annals of Eden Baptist history. Who's the most famous person that's come to our church? The only thing we can think of, and we've talked about it before, is when President George Bush flew in a helicopter over our building on a Sunday morning. (laughs) We watched it go over, and we knew he was there because the news reports were talking about his his arrival and the like, and I don't think he even waved, let alone stopped. (laughs) I mean, that's as close as we've gotten to fame right there. That's it. We are just common, average, unspectacular people. And why is that? Because only weak, irrational people embrace the gospel? No. This is a work of the sovereign God. As we've read, according to His pleasure, according to His choice, according to His design, as He destroys the wisdom of the wise, as He confounds and brings to shame those who would reject the weak and saves those weak. But it is so because of verse 29, so that for this reason... No human being might boast in the presence of God. Now that doesn't mean if you are wealthy, influential, and great in the eyes of people that you therefore could boast in the presence of God. It's looking at the overall picture of God's saving plan. As you stand back and look at his salvation purposes, he just goes after weak, unspectacular people. Has consistently done that through the ages. He has saved the smartest of the smart, the wealthiest of the wealthy, the most powerful people. But he focuses, if you look back at his body of work, and you see that he loves the downtrodden, the weak, the average. The purpose of life is to exalt forever in the saving power and grace of God And our world doesn't want to hear that message, but God shows His power, He shows His wisdom by choosing regular people to the eternal shame of all who trust in their wealth, fame, beauty, influence, power, or any other such idol. Does our identity remain there? Do we remain the lowly of the earth? Well, yes, in one sense, gloriously so, and we'll rejoice through eternity in what God has done. But notice in a different sense, verse 30, that this is not where it ends, that no human being would boast in the presence of God, but verse 30, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We glow with the work of God in our lives. United by faith to Christ, our living head, we are now wise. Not wise in worldly wisdom but wise in the light of God's revealed Word. Christ has become our righteousness, our union with Him, our relationship with Him. He now is our righteousness. He is the one who secures our right standing before the Father. It's a salvation from above. Christ is our sanctification, our salvation, past, present, and future, is rooted in our spiritual union with Him. Christ is our redemption. He purchased us with His lifeblood, redeeming us from our enslavement to sin and to Satan. And in the end, the goal is what? Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is the glory of eternity right there to boast in the grace and the kindness and the saving power of our God forever and ever. We should never boast, we should be humble, but in context, this specifically means that we must never boast in our wisdom, in our importance, or in our schemes. Rather, we should boast in the sovereign choice of God to reveal His powerful word to us in saving grace. And this word, the the power of this word, the transforming power of this word makes the church attractive. It displays the wisdom and the power of God, puts it on display, and it's illumined by the Holy Spirit. We gather then as the body of Christ, not to create our own truth on terms of our own choosing. That's why we don't calibrate the message of the church to what the culture wants to hear. Our world around doesn't set the agenda for what we teach and proclaim. Because we are not creating our own truth on terms of our making and certainly not to conform our lives together to the expectations of a world that rejects God's power and wisdom. We gather not to have our common sense stroked but to be weaned from all self-reliant, self-honoring, self-sufficient and ultimately self-destructive ways of thinking and living. We gather to heed God's life-giving, life-transforming word of truth. We gather as His people who, are, who have been saved to boast in the Lord, whose word liberates us from sin, saves us from perishing, and teaches us to live with moral skill. We gather then around this word as the people of God, redeemed by His grace. We gather around this word to boast in the God whose supposed folly we have found to be infinitely wise and whose supposed weakness we have found to be the ultimate power. Let's pray. We praise you, Father, for the instruction of this passage and for the reminder of how we need to relate to a world that has placed its demands upon us. And I pray for this congregation in the coming days and for the increased intensity of of this world's insistence that we let go of aspects of biblical truth, that we denounce them, that we see them to be folly. I pray that you would strengthen the spiritual backbone of this church, that you would strengthen the timber of our bones as we stand for your truth. I ask, Lord, that we would not permit the world to set the agenda for the church, but that we would also not relate to this world with anger, with frustration, with complaining and whining, and certainly not with withdrawal, hiding in our holes. But I pray, Father, that we would lift up your truth winsomely and display that truth in our lives And to acknowledge, God, that we just fall short of comprehending what it means that your word, that the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. Teach us this word. Grant us a commitment to it. And for those who have not yet been liberated in its light, we pray that you'd open their eyes and give them saving faith in Jesus crucified and risen. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.